Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Last week, we took a bit of a detour in our study in the book of Acts and um, heard from Caleb Holmes, who's our director of student ministry. Um, He taught on love from 1 Corinthians 13, which was part of what the students looked at on their winter retreat. A few weeks ago, and now today, uh, we're going to be jumping back into the book of Acts. Uh, Speaking of students, I saw recently that Generation Z took over millennials, which is my generation, as the largest generation currently living. And I saw that, and so I started reading some articles about Generation Z, and one that had a catchy headline was from Forbes, and it said, uh, the headline was, Gen Z wants to change the world. And the article was primarily written to employers um, and trying to help them understand Gen Z, who is the generation that's entering the workforce for the first time. So it was trying to help employers know, what does Gen Z want in a job? And what the article said was that 45% of Gen Z wants to work for a company that makes a positive difference in the world, which was a significantly higher percentage than for millennials, the previous generation. The article said paycheck is important, but purpose is key. Gen Zers are seeking purpose in their work at a much higher rate than previous generations for whom pay was almost always the most important consideration. Yes, the workforce's youngest generation wants financial security, but they are not willing to sacrifice their vision of a better world to pay the bills. Simply put, Gen Z doesn't want to work for a company where pursuit of the almighty dollar is the only outcome. They want more. And the truth is that last statement, they want more, isn't just true about Gen Z. That's true for all of us. We all want more out of life than a paycheck. We want more than just to go from one thing to the next in life without any meaning or purpose behind it all. Gen Z probably feels this pull toward meaning and purpose uh, more than previous generations because our world continues to lose all sense of meaning and purpose, but that need for meaning and purpose is not unique to Generation Z. A popular mental health website lists meaning and purpose as one of the 10 most important ingredients to leaving a happy life. They said that human beings need to participate in activities that are pleasurable in order to have a happy life, but we also need activities that are meaningful in order to lead a happy life. And I think one of the reasons why Gen Gen Z says they want purpose more than any other previous generation is because hopefully we're starting to see that the path to happiness that my generation has embraced, which is eat the best food, travel to the prettiest places, and sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want, doesn't actually lead to happiness. That lifestyle is high on pleasure, but it's low on meaning. Mark Sayers, who's a pastor from Australia, writes that in the absence of a story or foundation that gives hope or meaning, life has become a never-ending quest for pleasure and experience. And that life is fun at times, but it's not a happy or fulfilled life. Human beings need purpose and meaning. This is one reason I think why we like stories like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, the Chronicles of Narnia so much, because at their core, 
All of these stories are tales of ordinary people engaged in a cosmic battle for good against the evil in their world. You've got Harry and his friends fighting against Voldemort in the dark arts. You've got Frodo and his friends going on a journey to destroy the ring so that those who would want to use it for evil cannot. You have Peter, Susan, Edmund, Lucy, and a bunch of other kids entering Narnia to save it from the White Witch. Those characters in the stories have lives that are far from meaningless. They're very purposeful in their worlds. And we love those stories because we love that battle between good and evil. We love to see the ordinary, everyday individuals winning back their fictional worlds from evil and bringing things back into peace and wholeness. We love that their lives have incredible meaning. So what does all this have to do with the book of Acts? Well, a couple weeks ago, last time we were in Acts, we looked at Saul's conversion. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. It's, it's such a powerful story of the Apostle Paul being converted to the faith. And what we saw in that story was that Christianity has had such a profound and lasting impact on our world because Jesus and his gospel is the most explosive, transforming power ever unleashed in our world. And Saul's conversion from persecutor of the church, from the one going door-to-door -door arresting Christians, from the one who even oversaw the execution of a Christian, Saul's conversion from that to becoming a Christian himself is what Jeff said was is the best evidence of that power in the world. But now today what we'll see is that conversion, salvation, isn't the end of the story. What we'll see is that salvation by the explosive transforming power of Jesus actually leads to participation in the explosive transforming power of Jesus in our world. In other words, God doesn't just save individual people like you and me for future life after death. He saves, he converts, he transforms individuals like you and I and then wants to use us in order to build his kingdom. N.T. Wright says it this way, he says, when God saves people in this life, like he did with Saul, by working through his spirit to bring them to faith and by leading them to follow Jesus in discipleship, prayer, holiness, hope, and love, such people are designed, it isn't too strong a word, to be a sign and foretaste of what God wants to do for the entire cosmos. What's more, such people are not just to be a sign and foretaste of that ultimate salvation. They are to be part of the means by which God makes this happen in both the present and the future. And that's what we see in Saul's life after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul is transformed and then he immediately gets to work seeking the transformation of the world. The same explosive transforming power that saves Saul, that saves us, ought to also drive us and enable us to be used by God to build his kingdom. In other words, it's like God is inviting us into the real life story of Narnia, Middle Earth, and Harry Potter. He's inviting us to that life that Gen Z is looking for that's filled with meaning and purpose. He's inviting us even to play human foosball every day, except the enemy is not the orange team or the yellow team. It's evil and the power of evil in our world. He's inviting us right now to live according to his kingdom and not the kingdom of this world, which is passing away, and to be both a signpost of what the world would be like when Jesus returns and also to be part of building that kingdom in part right here and right now. In other words, we want more out of life because we were made for more in life. So personal salvation ought to lead to powerful participation with God in building his kingdom. And when a group of people does that together, we call it a church. 
And so what does it look like to do this? What does it look like to participate with the power of God in our world? What are some signs that a church is on the right track, living in the explosive, transforming power of Jesus? And that's what I think we'll see a couple marks of that in the rest of Acts 9 this morning. This isn't an exhaustive list of what makes a good church or a powerful church, but I think there's at least five things here, five marks of a powerful church, a church that's operating in and by the explosive, transforming power of Jesus in our world. And so that's what uh, we'll do. We'll start in Acts 9. Um, I'll start back up in the middle of verse 17 and read through 31. And then we'll stop and make a couple observations and then finish out the rest of the chapter. So Acts 9 Um, Starting in verse 17, just after Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, um, Ananias says to Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then we get this summary statement. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit... It multiplied. So Saul has this incredible conversion experience. He's seen the risen Lord Jesus face to face. He's blinded for three days. Everything about his life is upended, rearranged, transformed. And then what does he do next? Does he take a vacation, sit on the couch, take some time to recover? No. Luke says immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Saul moves directly from personal transformation to corporate participation with the church and inviting others to follow Jesus in Damascus. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but that's the Apostle Paul. That's not the normal pattern for everyday regular Christians. But I don't think that's actually the case because if you remember several weeks ago when we looked at uh, the church spreading in Judea and in Samaria, it was the apostles, the church leaders that stayed home in Jerusalem. It was the non-professional Christians. It was the regular everyday Christians who were scattered into Judea and Samaria And yet the church continued to grow in those areas. And it grew because ordinary, everyday Christians who had personally experienced the transforming power of God turned around and participated with that power in the world. 
This pattern from personal transformation by the power of God to participation with the power of God in the world is the normal pattern we've seen all throughout Acts and what we see in the rest of the New Testament. So then what happens when Paul gets to work inviting people to follow Jesus? They're, they're amazed, of course. They're amazed that the same person who had come to their city with the purpose of arresting followers of Jesus in Damascus is now going around with the purpose of inviting everyone to follow Jesus. And verse 31 says that the church continued to multiply, meaning people believed Saul, and they followed Jesus. I think that's the first mark of a powerful church that we see in this story. We see it in Saul, we see it in the city as a whole, and it's transformed lives. A powerful church is one in which people's lives have been and are being transformed. Saul's the ultimate example of this, of course. He goes from Christian killer to Christian himself, but there were hundreds, maybe thousands in Damascus who didn't have this public transformation, but had that same inward personal transformation as Saul as they went from not knowing Jesus to believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And transformed lives are just what happens when the gospel goes forth in power in a community. Bitter, grumpy people are made joyful. Selfish people are made selfless. Greedy people become generous. People who are living according to their own wants and desires turn and trust Jesus instead and experience the abundant and full life that they were searching for. And then it spreads and it multiplies, and more lives are transformed. Saul's transformation leads to multiplication in Damascus, and if you know the rest of the story of Acts, it leads to multiplication of the church around all of the known world. And so a strong church, a powerful church, is a church that is growing as more and more lives are transformed. As more and more people who are currently living under the rule of the kingdom of darkness in this present age have their lives rearranged and begin living under the rule of the kingdom of God. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, are one of the primary means that God uses to bring about this transformation in people's lives. If we've been personally transformed by Jesus, our transformation shouldn't stay personal. It should multiply and follow this pattern of acts as the gospel continues to spread and spread and spread. As we've studied uh, the book of Acts, we've seen both wonderful proclamation of the gospel and also powerful demonstration from the church that Jesus is alive and that because he's alive, he's conquered sin, he's conquered death and ushered in something new in the world. Something has changed and you know, we look around our world and we see brokenness everywhere and sometimes it's hard to see that something actually has changed. It's hard to see that Jesus actually has brought something new, but the example that we see in the book of Acts is they also look around, they also see the brokenness in their world, but because they knew that Jesus was Lord, that he was raised from the dead, that this new kingdom was coming, their response was to get to work, pushing back against brokenness and inviting others to live according to the kingdom that Jesus would bring in full when he returns. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the privilege of announcing that good news to friends, to family, to neighbors, that there's a new kingdom and a new king coming even in the midst of a broken world. If you're here this morning and you haven't experienced the explosive, transforming power of Jesus in your life personally, we want to invite you into that new kingdom this morning. We want to invite you to turn from the materialism and relativism and 
consumerism of our present age and to trust Jesus as the way and the truth and the life and to know the peace and the hope and the love and the joy that only comes from personally knowing and willingly living under the reign of the world's true king. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, we're so glad you're here this morning. We would love to talk with you after the service. So the first mark of a powerful church that we see in Acts 9 is transformed lives. Another mark of a powerful church that we see here is unity. Verse 31 is is this summary verse that we've seen several of these in the book of Acts so far. The last one was Acts 6-7. In Acts 6-7, the summary was that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So that summary verse back in chapter 6 was focused on Jerusalem. It was focused on Jews coming and trusting Jesus. And then the next section of the book of Acts that we've been walking through the past couple weeks tells stories of the gospel spreading outside of Jerusalem. As people in Judea and Samaria believe, as Samaritans and Africans believe, and now we get this next summary verse in 931. And this time, what Luke says is the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So again, Luke's kind of closing down this section of the book of Acts with this summary statement and saying this time the gospel wasn't just spreading in Jerusalem, it was spreading in Judea and Galilee. It was spreading in Samaria. And Luke's highlighting the fact that the church is not just made up of a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem who had seen Jesus during his life on earth. It now includes Judeans and Galileans. It includes Samaritans, which the Jews hated. It includes Africans. It includes people who never saw Jesus with their own eyes during his time on earth. And yet, the church still had peace, was being built up, and multiplied. Despite the fact that the church was growing more and more diverse, despite the fact that Saul, the one who hated the church, is now welcomed into the church, the picture that we get here at this point in the story is of a united church that's united by the power of the gospel, and it continues to grow and multiply and strengthen. And we know that a divided church, and that applies to the lowercase c church like this one and capital C church like the global church, a divided church is not a powerful church. Whether it's divided racially, socioeconomically, or, or otherwise, a divided church has a hard time unleashing God's power in the world. Our witness suffers, our our ministry suffers, and the kingdom suffers when the church is divided. On the other hand, a united church is a perfect signpost of what God is doing in the world and will fully do when Jesus returns. I say that because the book of Revelation, um, in chapter 7, Revelation is God giving John the Apostle a vision of the heavenly realities and what will be fully true when Jesus returns. And this is what it says. It says, John, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And so this is a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. And what it means is that when people of different genders, races, backgrounds, economic statuses, political ideologies, when we gather in unity to worship God together, it's the ultimate picture of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into our broken world. 
A diverse but united church is a powerful church and it's a powerful witness in the world. This is the type of church that would make unchurched people turn their heads and think, what's going on over there? Francis Schaeffer wrote this in the the 20th century, but I think it's true for uh, the 21st century as well. He said, I'm convinced that in the 20th century, people all over the world will not listen if we have the right doctrine, but are not exhibiting community. Schaefer also called love the final apologetic, meaning as Christians, we can try and convince non-Christians as much as we want to follow Jesus. We can invite them into uh, fullness in Christ and to have their lives transformed by the gospel. But if they don't look at us and see us loving one another in a radical way, they just won't listen to our message. And we don't really give them much reason to either. As those who have been welcomed and forgiven by God and who are welcomed and forgiven by God every day, though we turn from him, our response ought to be to turn and to welcome and forgive others as well, even those who look differently and think differently than we do. A powerful church is one where there's there's unity among people who have reason to exhibit disunity. Let's pick it back up after the summary verse and um, verse 32, at this point, the story actually shifts back to Peter. Um, and it doesn't really seem like it, but we've actually had three years go by. Um, when uh, P- Luke just says that many days had passed in verse 23. But when Paul is telling this story in Galatians 1, he says he actually spent three years in Damascus and in Syria in that area spreading the gospel. And so uh, we don't know exactly what he's doing there other than he's telling people about Jesus and they're coming to Christ. And then Now Luke's going to shift back and say, let me tell you what Peter has been up to during that time. And the story is going to continue to advance forward. So picking it back up in um, Acts 9, 32, Luke says, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. And so when we return to Peter, we find out that he's not up to anything different. He's doing the same two things he's been doing, which is tell people about Jesus and heal people. First, we read about Peter healing a man named Aeneas, who's been paralyzed for eight years. And then there's the story of Tabitha, who Peter raises from the dead. And so I think the first thing we learn from these two stories is that everywhere the gospel goes in power, people are being made whole. Wholeness is a mark of a powerful church. 
In these stories, the example is someone who can't walk regaining the ability to walk, and a woman who has become sick and died is raised back to health. Now, uh, don't get nervous. I'm not saying that if, if we're going to be a good church, people, we need to start raising the dead every Sunday, anything like that. Uh, I don't think we can read the miraculous stories in Acts and come away with the expectation that we should see the same exact things happening in our church. Uh, this period of church history was unique. Uh, we know that the, the miracles in Acts were designed to give validity to the message about Jesus. And so it makes sense that when the message is going out into the world for the first time, there would be numerous and powerful miracles to give validity to the message. Now today, 2,000 years later, in a place where the message of Jesus is widely known, miracles are less common. But at the same time, I do want to say clearly that God hasn't changed. We, we worship, we pray to the same God that Peter worshiped and prayed to, and God can and does still miraculously heal people today. The church is filled with stories of unexplained healings that could only be attributed to God. And we should pray for miracles in places where there doesn't seem to be any human hope. The main thing I want us to take away from these stories, though, is that in the kingdom of God, people are being made whole. And a powerful church is one in where that's happening. It, it might be rare for miraculous healings to take place, but it shouldn't be rare for people to be made whole in other ways. It shouldn't be rare for people to learn to trust Christ and find relief from crippling anxiety. It shouldn't be rare in the church for marriages that are falling apart to be put back together. It shouldn't be rare for lonely people to find friends or the overworked and overburdened to find rest or the poor and the homeless to find provision, the addicted to find freedom, the hopeless to find hope. The miracles in the book of Acts show us that when the kingdom of God comes in power, it makes people whole. And we know that perfect wholeness will not come until Jesus returns. But a church that's living in the explosive power of God right now is one that's working to see people made whole and have that work start here and now. This is what Paul says about every single Christian. He says, if anyone is in, in, is, if, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Paul doesn't say you will be a new creation, although that's true. He says if you're in Christ right now, you are a new creation. And Paul's language is speaking to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the world. It's like he's saying in the middle of this creation, which is broken and tattered by sin, a new creation is breaking forth in individual lives and spreading out to the world. So in other words, it ought to be normal in the church for the broken effects of this world to be pushed back by what God is doing in your life and in our community. Wholeness where there was brokenness is a mark of the power of God in our world. And now again, I want to say this very clearly. That doesn't mean that followers of Jesus never get anxious, never get depressed, never struggle to pay the bills, or never get divorced. This world is broken and will remain broken until Christ returns. But at the same time, it doesn't just mean we throw up our hands and hope and long for that day. We should long and hope and pray and work towards making whole what is broken, both in our lives and the lives of others in our church and in our city right now as we wait for Jesus to come back. Another mark of a powerful church that we see in these stories um, of Peter is generosity. 
notice the difference in how Luke talks about Aeneas, who's the paralyzed man who was healed, and Tabitha, the dead woman who was raised. With Aeneas, he gives, just gives us the necessary information. There's a guy named Aeneas, he can't walk, Peter heals him, that's it. But with Tabitha, he gives us a lot more. He tells us that she's a disciple. He gives us a translation of her name. He talks about the garments that she's made and all the people who are weeping because of her death. She, um, Luke tells us in verse 36 that Tabitha was full of good works and acts of charity. And I don't think all these extra details are accidental. I think Luke's trying to highlight something here. It doesn't mean that Aeneas was a bad person, but Luke doesn't choose to tell us anything about him. But with Tabitha, he intentionally brings out her generosity and her influence in Joppa. And it doesn't really add much to the story. If, if Luke just told us that there was someone who was dead and now she's raised back to life, that's a pretty powerful story. And yet, Luke goes to great lengths to describe this woman. And I'm sure part of that is because Luke is a, a good storyteller and he's telling us a story, but again, he doesn't do any of that with Aeneas. And so I think there is something here about Luke wanting to highlight that Tabitha was a generous woman and that her generosity made a huge impact in her city. Uh, some people have even speculated from these verses that the Christians in Joppa had uh, a full-fledged charitable organization going on in the city. Um, that's just speculation. We don't know anything other than what Luke tells us here. But I do think, again, it's safe to say that her generosity and the fact that the church is growing in Joppa seems to be connected. And Luke wants to bring that out for us. Of course, generosity with, consistent with the kingdom of God is, is, we see that all throughout the New Testament. You got 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where it says God loves a cheerful giver. Luke 6, 38, give and it will be given to you. Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than receive. I think I heard that a bunch at Christmas time as a kid. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 18, charge people to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. And so one aspect of the explosive, transforming power of God in the world is that it takes people who are concerned with our own money, own possessions, own wealth, own self, which is every single one of us, and transforms us into those who live generously and give away our money, our possessions, our wealth, and ourselves for the sake of others. The fact that people in our world lack basic necessities like food, water, clothing, housing is a major sign that the kingdom of God has not yet come in fullness in our world. But the church has an opportunity to be like Tabitha, to be generous and to unleash some of the power of the kingdom in this area and to provide for those who are in need. We do this by caring for family and friends who are in need. We do this by partnering with organizations in our city like Restore OKC or the Hope Center. We do this by giving financially to the church and to organizations like that. A powerful church is a generous church. The last mark of a powerful church that we see in Acts 9, and this one really runs throughout the whole section here, is that a powerful church is a spirit-empowered church. We first see this back up at Saul's conversion in verse 17, where Luke says, Paul, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, and then this filling of the Spirit is what causes this radical transformation in his life. And then as Saul's going around Damascus, telling everyone about Jesus, verse 22 says, Saul increased all the more in strength. 
And it would be easy to read that verse and think that it's talking about Saul's strength in terms of his popularity or his rhetorical skill or his confidence in preaching Christ, but it's actually more likely that what Luke's talking about here is the Holy Spirit strengthening Paul by the power of God. In fact, Saul uh, himself uses this word in his letters, and each time he uses it, he's specifically talking about God strengthening him or others by the power of the Spirit. Philippians 4.13 is the famous example where he writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 2 Timothy 4.17, he says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And 2 Timothy 2, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, You, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Saul clearly knew where his strength came from. It wasn't in his preaching skill. It wasn't in the growing number of disciples in Damascus. It was in the power of God that was in him through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Another example of the empowerment of the Spirit we see in this section is verse 31. This summary statement, it says the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. So the church had a healthy reverence for and dependence upon God. We see it in Peter healing Aeneas when he says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't say I heal you. He says Jesus heals you. And then a final example, when Peter heals Tabitha, we already noticed that we get a lot of extra details here. And one of the details we get is that in verse 40, before Peter raises Tabitha from the dead, he asks everyone to leave. He kneels down and he prays. Peter knew that the ability to raise Tabitha from the dead did not originate with himself. He had healed people up until this point in the story, but as far as we know, Peter had never raised anyone from the dead. And so the picture we get of Peter is he knows that all things are possible with God. He knows that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's seen Jesus raise other people from the dead, but he knows that this is something he has no power in himself whatsoever to accomplish. And so he kneels in a posture that communicates dependence upon God, and he prays. And then by God's power through the Spirit, Tabitha is raised from the dead. And so this theme that runs throughout this whole chapter is that a powerful church is a church that relies upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's pretty obvious when we're looking at the book of Acts. There's a lot of powerful stuff happening, and it's very clearly that Luke is attributing this all to the Spirit. But that's a lot less intuitive for you and I when it comes to actually putting this into practice in our daily lives. It's a lot easier for us as a church to rely on our uh, brains and our leadership skills and our programs and small groups and good verse-by-verse preaching and excellent worship music than it is to rely on the power of God. Personally, it's much easier to rely on productivity methods or parenting strategies or the latest diet or checking as many things off a to-do list as quickly as you possibly can than it is to rely on the power of God. It's really hard to spend time with God first thing in the morning praying, asking God to do stuff in your life if it means that that hour you spend with God is one less hour you have in the day to get the stuff done that you really need to get done. And yet what we see in Acts is that the power God unleashes onto our world is not smart people getting a lot of things done. It's the Holy Spirit enabling ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You can have a good life in your own strength, and we can build a good church in our own strength, but when we rely upon the power of the Spirit, like Paul, like Peter, like the church in Acts, 
We can live individual lives and lives as a church together corporately that make an impact for the kingdom of God that goes far beyond anything we could imagine. It makes me think of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, which says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. So how do we do that? How do we rely on the power of the, how, how we do that, how we rely on the power of spirit is a, uh, a whole other sermon that we're, we can't get to today. Uh, it's going to look different from person to person. But what we can say is that to live in the spirit's power has to start with humble acknowledgement that we can't live our lives. We can't bring the kingdom of God in ourselves or in others or in the world. Only God can. And so we have to ask him to. We have to live each moment aware of God's presence and power in our lives, and this happens, like we see with Peter, by spending time in prayer. In other words, we need both scheduled and focused time of prayer where we can pray boldly and specifically for God to bring his kingdom where it's absent, and we also need to learn how to pray without ceasing, like Paul said, and to live moment by moment aware of the fact that the Lord is with us. So those are five marks of a powerful church that we see in Acts chapter 9. A powerful church is marked by transformed lives, by unity, by wholeness, by generosity, and then the one that runs through them all is by spirit empowerment. So very quickly, what do we do with this? Well, simply, if we've experienced the explosive, transforming power of God in our lives personally, we ought to become participators with the power of God to seek to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the broken places of our world. I hope that these stories grow your idea about the church and about what it means to follow Jesus. I hope they've helped you see that you are not just saved for heaven, which would be good news for the future, but doesn't matter much for today or tomorrow. You're not just saved to come to a Sunday morning social gathering like this one, which might give you some friends, but wouldn't give you much meaning. You weren't saved into a political or charitable organization, which might lead to some meaningful change in the world, but it would be change that will never last. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been saved to be a participator in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. N.T. Wright, again, says it this way. The church is the story of God's kingdom being launched on earth as in heaven, generating a new state of affairs in which the power of evil has been decisively defeated, the new creation has been decisively launched, and Jesus' followers have been commissioned and equipped to put that victory and that inaugurated new world into practice. It kind of sounds like he's talking about Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, or Narnia. But if this is true, and if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that your life has more meaning and purpose than you could ever imagine. It means you're not just earning a living, enjoying some hobbies, maybe raising some kids, and then retiring, and that's it. You were designed for more. You're designed to participate with God to bring his perfect kingdom to bear on our broken world and to point others toward hope in the fact that a day is coming when Jesus will return and usher in his perfect kingdom completely. So where do we start? I love this simple quote. It just says, look around you. 
Consider where God has placed you and others with you. Does it look like Jesus' kingdom? Are the hungry fed, the naked clothed, the broken brought to health, the disconnected included in families, and captives set free to fully live? If we are servants of Jesus, we are in the place where he has put us in order to serve others as he served us. I love the simplicity in that. He just says, look around. What do you see that doesn't look like Jesus' kingdom? Is anyone in need? What broken relationships are you aware of? What addictions or struggles do you see people dealing with? Where is there disunity instead of unity? Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? And then we go to the Lord in prayer and we ask him to make what's right, what's wrong in those places right. We ask boldly, we ask specifically, and then we do what we have the power to do to make the kingdom of God a reality in our world where it isn't currently a reality. And a group of Christians living like that makes a really powerful church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your transforming power in our lives to make us a new creation. God, we pray that you would help us move beyond ourselves and our own salvation to a place where we make your kingdom more of a reality in our broken world. We pray that you would meet the needs of those in this room this morning, that you would heal marriages, you would break addictions, you would restore relationships. And Father, we pray for those here this morning who have not had their lives rearranged by your transforming power. God, I pray that you would call them to yourself this morning. You would bring them into your kingdom and into the peace and the hope and the love and the joy that only comes from knowing you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.